Have you guys ever found in this fractured political climate and the isolation and the pandemic of 2020 that you just find yourself having crazy thoughts that you've never had before? Am I the only one? Let me share an example. Back in April, I found myself with a rare hour or two of free time. All my family was asleep, so I turned on the TV and I found this movie that looked interesting. It was titled Blinded by the Light, and I didn't know much about it when I selected it, but it's the story of this Indian immigrant in England growing up in the 80s who really grows to love the music of Bruce Springsteen. And I love Bruce Springsteen, so I thought this might be interesting. So I sit down and I start to watch it. And about halfway through, I was horrified to discover that it was a musical, okay? <laughs> like, like, for the first half of the movie, it was dealing with really deep and dramatic themes. It's this immigrant, and he's trying to fit in, and high school and college are not accepting, and, is, and, and economic times are hard in England in the 80s, and you know, there's all these kind of interesting things going on, and all of a sudden, out of nowhere, it's like a Bollywood movie, a hundred characters are all singing and dancing at the exact same time. And I, like, that's just not for me. So I turned it off. Like I said, everybody else was sleeping. I walked over to the window. It's just, it's like a dark storm and it's just pouring. And I thought to myself, that movie just didn't spark anything in me. I just, I have no interest in watching the rest of that movie. Probably with the pandemic and the serious things that are happening in this world, I'll never enjoy a movie again. That's, uh, seriously, I was thinking this. That's probably the last movie that I'll ever watch. And it was terrible, right? Now, of course that was not the last movie that I would ever watch, right? I probably would go on to watch and enjoy another movie like later on that week. But this is what fear does to us. Am I right? It exaggerates the unknown. It assumes the worst. It makes us look at a future without the possibility of any goodness. Okay, that's what fear does to us. Was 2020 a year of abnormally high fear and pessimism and doubt and worry for you? It certainly was for me. Well, in Galatians 5, to 23, the author tells us that there's several attributes or virtues that characterize what God's Spirit is like. And in this passage... It explains that as we walk with God, as we follow God through the good and the bad and the unknown, he's going to bring more of this list of attributes or virtues that characterize his spirit into our lives. And so we've been studying one attribute each week from that list and passages in the Bible that explain how we can have more of those things. And the attribute that we get to today is peace. What would it look like if you had more peace in your life? Would you sleep better at night? Would you like your friends and family to feel comfort and security as they talked with you and spent time with you? Would you like to be able to read and watch the news and not freak out for the next three hours? Would you like God's help and protection from the anxiety that so often springs up in our souls? Would you like to be able to enjoy a movie again, right? If you want any of these things, the good news is that in Philippians 4, 4 to 9, 
Paul is teaching us four ways that we can experience more of a supernatural, God-given peace in our lives. So if you haven't already, please turn to Philippians 4, 4 4-9, the the passage that the worship team read for us. And I'd like to just kind of talk through this incredible passage in two points. In section 1, I just want to talk about the context of this letter, because as we start to understand who Paul was writing to and, and what he was addressing, we're going to feel a strong connection because in a lot of ways, these Philippians are just like us. And then I want to uh, go through four ways that Paul is teaching you and I that we can have more of a God-given, sincere, authentic peace in our lives. And I think, even though you guys laughed at my story, right? I think you're in the same place. I think you would like to have God's peace take away some of those crazy moments that you encounter as well. So let's talk just really quickly, just for five or six minutes, about the church in Philippi, because it's a lot like our culture. It's a lot like our context. Um, You know, a lot of times if we think about ancient Greece, we just think about people sitting around with those hats that are made out of wreaths and maybe drinking some wine or eating some grapes. But it was a contentious place. Like the world was changing for a lot of reasons and in a lot of ways. Let's talk a little bit more. So Philippi is interesting because of all the things that are happening in one place at the same time. Philippi, get this, it was a Roman colony, so it was inhabited primarily by Romans as Rome was taking over the region, but it was in Greece. So, of course, it also had all sorts of Hellenistic influences and all the philosophy and uh, literature that uh, you might have learned about in school in ancient Greece. In Acts 16, we learn that this was the first Christian church on European soil. So it also has these Christian ideas that are coming into the community. And then in the first few verses of Philippians chapter 3, we learn that there's also this Greek remnant that's really kind of old school Hebrew. And they're trying to combat the Christian influences that are springing up with kind of this old Jewish way of looking at things. So let me ask you guys another question as we try to connect with what it is that Paul's teaching here. Do you ever feel different influences are pushing for your allegiance? As you try to think through some issue that others are talking about or something in your life, do you ever feel like there's different voices or different influences that are pulling you in different directions? Do you ever start to think through an issue and then all of a sudden you, f- you think about your regional allegiances and how the people in the town that you grew up in thought about that issue? But then all of a sudden you think about your political persuasion and how the politicians that you might have voted for think about and try to solve that issue. But then you think about the Bible and how your faith and how the wisdom of Scripture might want you to interact with that. Uh, and then all of a sudden there's a final poll about Oh, what, what do I have to say and do to get the acceptance of my peers in this particular issue? And those are just a couple things off the top of my head that remind us that nothing's ever just black and white. We always feel pulled in multiple directions when we're trying to work through a complicated issue. That's often where the lack of peace comes from. And the Philippian church was no different. They were in a chaotic storm of Roman politics and Roman thought, in Greek politics, in Greek philosophy, in Jewish thought, and these new ideas that Paul was teaching. And I hope you can start to connect that Paul was talking to a church that was very much like ours, just getting pulled in all sorts of different directions. And what about Greece itself? You know, Greek, Greece had a lot in common 
with our culture as we've borrowed heavily from them. It was a very prosperous country, but it also had a lot of economic disparity. Historians estimate that at any given time, 40 to 80% of all the inhabitants in Greece were slaves. So it was prosperous, but the money was not necessarily distributed equitably. How about an elevated love of sports and leisure? Did you know that the Olympics were invented 150 years before Jesus was born? So even in the time of Jesus, they already had this crazy devotion to sports and leisure. There's a lot of uh, uh, documents that have been discovered where all Greek wars would be put on hold during an Olympic year. You might think that sometimes we elevate skiing or sports or leisure a little bit too high, but we're not canceling wars, right? So we can get our Olympics in. And um, probably the greatest connection point is, you know, as you think back to ancient Greece, you think about Zeus and you think about Apollos and you think about all of their gods. But in the Hellenistic period, right before Jesus came onto the scene, there was this huge surge in advancement in the knowledge of government and philosophy and mathematics and science. All of a sudden, the Greek culture wasn't primarily religious anymore. They were secular in the sense that they now saw the source of wisdom being literature and mathematics and philosophy and some of these other kind of university-affiliated, um, uh, I guess, um, sources of, uh, of knowledge. So Paul is writing to a group that's a lot like ours. Paul is talking to a situation that's a lot like ours. Listen to how Paul characterizes the Greeks in uh, Philippians 3, 18 to 19, he's talking to the Christians and he's kind of contrasting the way they live and the things that they value with some of the people that live in their community. And he says, they are enemies of the cross. Their God is their belly. Their glory is their shame. And they set their mind on earthly things. Do you know anybody that would fit that description? I know a lot of people that that could be said is true about them. Um, but that was just the community. It was probably a lot better in the church, right? Like everything was probably just harmonious and free of conflict inside Paul's church in Philippi. Well, in chapter 128, uh, verse 28, he's talking about how a lot of the people in the church are getting persecuted because of their beliefs. They're getting mocked. They're getting made fun of. Their business deals are falling apart because of their faith. They're facing legitimate persecution because of their belief in Jesus. In Philippians 2, verse 4, Paul says that there's many in the church that are looking to their own interests and not to the interests of others. Have you guys ever had a time when you just really needed someone in your church family to lift you up? And they were busy looking to their own interests. In Philippians uh, chapter 3, verse 2, Paul says that there's this faction in the community or this group in the church. They're not looking towards the new life that the gospel brings. They're not celebrating this idea that Jesus Christ can forgive our sins and reconcile us to a holy God. They're just getting caught up in all these outward religious traditions. Okay, These are all things that we in our country still experience today. So the reason why I kind of take that detour is because if somebody tells you to have more peace in your life, but you can't relate to them, you say, easy for them, but they don't know my situation. But as we kind of take some time to have that overview, 
of what they were experiencing in the church in Philippi, I think we can relate and we can understand that if Paul had advice on how they could have more of a God-given peace in their life, surely that same advice can bring more God-given peace into our life. And finally, how about Paul? Like, Paul had it all together, right? Well, it tells us in Philippians 1, verse 13, that he wrote this letter from prison. He was in prison because of his Christian beliefs. And if you guys haven't been able to relate to Philippians yet, maybe you've been quarantined in this last month. Paul was quarantined. He was locked up. He was unable to visit his loved ones. And he was experiencing that in the midst of a rapidly changing world. And with all these connection points, with all these tensions and struggles that they were experiencing, just like the things, just like the tensions and the factions that we're experiencing today, Paul comes in here with this passage, Philippians 4, 4 to 9, and he says, God wants to protect you with a peace. And so let's explore how we can experience that protective peace from God in our lives. And we'll just kind of break it off into four really easy things. These aren't, these aren't complicated to understand, but of course they're more complicated to apply and to live out. But we can do it with God's strength. Let's talk about the first thing. The first way that Paul tells us that we can have more of a harvest of peace in our lives comes here in verse 4, Philippians 4, uh, chapter 4, verse 4. And it says this, Rejoice in the Lord always. I will say it again, rejoice. So the first thing that Paul is telling us that we need to think about and do if we want to have less anxiety and less worry and less fear and more peace in our lives is that we need to rejoice in the Lord. Let's take a minute to explore that a little bit more deeply. Paul's saying the first step in having more peace in your life is to rejoice in the Lord. And I think the most common mistake I make when I try to apply that is I forget the in the Lord part. Okay? Paul says rejoice in the Lord and you'll have more peace. But I forget the in the Lord part because I have a lot of really great things in my life that usually cause me to rejoice. I have an incredible wife. I have four gifted kids that bring a lot of joy into my days. And uh, I live in a beautiful place that I just find to be energizing and inspiring. And so most days, I can rejoice in the joy that those things bring me. And I'm sure that there's a lot of things in your life that cause you to rejoice with the joy that they bring you. And don't read into this next part too much. It's just the reality of life. There's some days where my wife or my children are the tension, right? They are what takes away the joy. There's sometimes this harsh place that we all live in is what causes the complications and the hardship and the isolation and the depression or whatever it is that comes along with that. And on those days when those things that sometimes bring me joy don't bring me joy, I think that Paul is asking something that's impossible and there's no way that I could possibly rejoice because the things that normally bring me joy aren't bringing me joy on those days. And that's when we have to remember that Paul's not saying just rejoice in the good things because he knows that we don't get that every day. Right? Do you see where I'm going with this? Paul is saying rejoice in the Lord. There was this great guy at my last church, this old bald guy. He was like in his late... 80s. His name was Bernie. I love Bernie so much. He always had a great one-liner. But he had some hard things in his life too. 
Uh, Bernie was a Korean War veteran. Bernie had a bad back. Bernie, his eyes were starting to cause him trouble. Uh, he had a daughter who went through some really hard things. But anytime you would ask Bernie, how are you? He'd always say the same thing. I have nothing to complain about when I think about how good the Lord has been to me. Now keep in mind, his back was killing him. He was losing his vision. His loved ones were going through really difficult things. He wasn't saying, all in all, things are going great, because that wouldn't have been true. Bernie was doing, giving us a great example of what Paul is telling us to do, rejoice in the Lord, when he said, I have nothing to complain about when I think about how good God has been to me. Right? That's like an extra category that we bring into it that will always be true even when the other things don't bring the joy. So uh, the application is that if you believe what Paul is teaching here, that God wants to bring more joy into your life, and the first step is to rejoice in the Lord always, you need to do a little bit of homework. You need to think of two or three or a couple of things that are always true about you because of God. You need to write those down until you have them memorized, and you have to spend some time every morning and every evening sandwiched in between all the chaos and hard things of your day, rejoicing in the good things of the Lord. A couple of the things on my list are this. Romans 5.8 tells me that God has shown me how selfish and sinful I am, but regardless of how sinful and selfish I am, God loved me enough for Jesus to come and take my place in judgment. And I can rejoice in that truth every day. Romans 8.28 says that no matter how poorly my decisions sometimes are, God has a good and perfect plan for my life. Even the things I messed up, God can turn into good. And I can rejoice in the Lord in that truth every day. 2 Peter 3.9 tells me that no matter how wicked this world is, God is patient and God is loving and He is working to bring restoration. So I don't have to get in that circle of old guys at the restaurant that are talking about how badly this country is going downhill because 2 Peter 3.9 tells me that God is patient and loving and working to bring restoration. I hope that you guys take this seriously and understand that we are meant to rejoice in the good things that God has done for us every day. And that's the first thing that we can do if we want God to bring this protective peace into our lives to combat the anxiousness and the fear and the worry that's so prevalent inside our souls. All right, Paul goes on and gives us a couple other really wise things to work on too. He says, The goodness and the sovereignty of God is meant to be visible to other people in your temperament. Let me say that again because, ooh, that's hard. The goodness and the control that God has of this world is meant to be visible to other people in your gentle temperament. You don't have to freak out about everything because God's in control. And if you truly believe that God is good and God is in control, you don't have to freak out. Listen to what it says here in Philippians chapter 4, verse 5. Let your gentleness be evident to all. Let your gentleness be evident to all. Now, I think the reason why this one is particularly difficult for us is because we don't understand gentleness in the way that Paul is talking about gentleness. Do you guys ever watch Mr. Rogers' Neighborhood? I hope everybody has. It was always on TV when I was a kid, and there's only like four channels, so you didn't have a lot of choices. 
Um, I love Mr. Rogers because there's a lot of people in our country, and Mr. Rogers is the only person who they've ever heard say that you're special. Isn't that a great thing to be known for? You tell kids every day that they're special, and there's a lot of kids that that's the only person they ever heard that from. But I digress. Everybody makes fun of Mr. Rogers. Because first of all, he's really little. He's only like 100 pounds. He's a tiny guy. And he's always like talking softly. He's always whispering to kids. And uh, he's you know, putting on his shoes, taking his sweater on and off. It's, it's very childlike stuff. And so as I was growing up, there were Saturday Night Live skits that made fun of Mr. Rogers. You'd watch late night TV and Jay Leno and David Letterman and Johnny Carson would make fun of Mr. Rogers. And uh, uh, stand-up comedians would always have a joke or two about Mr. Rogers. And, you know, the idea is that he was so gentle, he was so timid, he was so meek that you just make fun of people like that. And uh, I think a lot of times we have kind of a, a test in our head. We ask ourselves... Could I beat that person up, right? Could I make fun of that person and other people would laugh? And if the answer to those questions are yes, then we think that that person is gentle in a, a passive and in an inconsequential in an insignificant way. But that is not the gentleness that uh, Paul is talking about here. A year or two back, I came across a documentary about Fred Rogers, and he was actually an extraordinary person. And I'll just give one example from this documentary. They were about to film one of their episodes uh, in 1969, and uh, that's how old the show is. And Fred Rogers was watching the news or reading the newspaper, and he saw that even though it had been against the law in our country for over five years to segregate swimming pools... There were still many swimming pools throughout the country that were refusing to let African Americans swim at the same time that white people were swimming. And Mr. Rogers got really angry. He was actually a Presbyterian minister, and he believed that Jesus taught that we should love others like ourselves. And that was a violation of Christ's golden rule. So he crumpled up that day's episode, and he wrote out a new one. And in that day's episode, an African American neighbor came over and got in a swimming pool with Fred Rogers at the same time. And then they shared a towel as they dried off their feet. And you can only imagine the criticism and the sacks of hate mail that Fred Rogers got at a time when there were still a lot of people in this country that didn't want people to uh, mix in swimming pools. But I think that gives an example of how sometimes we look at somebody and we think that they're gentle and meek, but they're really a lion. Right? They're really courageous in a way that everyday people are not courageous. When Paul's telling us in Philippians 4, verse 5, to be gentle, we think he's asking us to be that first example of Mr. Rogers. We think he just wants us to be quiet and small and stay out of the way, and we don't want to be gentle in that way. But that's not what he's saying. The Greek word that's used here by Paul means a spirit that's patient and restrained as it accomplishes its will. The gentleness that we're called to have is to be patient and restrained as you accomplish your will. So Mr. Rogers was still doing groundbreaking, revolutionary stuff. He was standing up to the television executives that paid his salary. He was flying in the face of a lot of the ways that people looked at race relations in 1969. He was a courageous person, but he was patient and restrained as he did what he knew was right.
So the second thing that we're told to do here if we want to have more peace in our life is to be gentle. But it doesn't mean to be a mouse. It doesn't mean to be inconsequential. It means to be patient and restrained as you do what you know is right. The biggest problem, in my opinion, with our political climate right now is we've convinced ourselves that we can be obnoxious if we're right. We've convinced ourselves that we can condemn others if we know that we're right. That's not what Paul's telling us here. He's saying that's not going to lead to peace. That's not going to characterize your life with peace. You need to be patient and restrained as you do what you know is right. Let me ask you a couple questions. Kids, are you patient and restrained if your sisters or your brothers or your mom and dad are wrong? Um, Grown-ups, teenagers, when you're online and nobody knows your true identity, are you patient and restrained as you articulate for what you think is right? When someone doesn't treat you with the value that you think that you deserve, do you fly off the handle or are you patient and restrained as you advocate for things? How about this? When you're talking about politics with somebody with a different worldview or a different value system, are you patient and restrained as you pursue what you know is right? You sow what you reap, correct? Paul is telling us if you want more patience in your life, be restrained as you advocate for what you know is good and true. Third thing that Paul tells us here that we can do if we want more peace in our lives comes here in verse 6. I have it labeled incorrectly in the bulletin. Listen to what it says here in verse 6. Do not be anxious about anything, but in every situation, with prayer and petition and thanksgiving, present your request to God. And the peace of God, which transcends all understanding, will guard your hearts and your mind in Christ Jesus. We kind of classify ourselves into two categories, anxious people and non-anxious people. And uh, if you try to tell somebody, a spouse or a, a, a friend, who's more anxious than you not to be anxious, watch out. Back up, right? But the truth is we're all anxious. We all have anxiety in different ways. And I can't think of a better verse in the Bible, a better passage in the Bible, that tells us how to handle the anxieties that each one of us has. It says, don't be anxious, but in every situation with prayer and petition and thanksgiving, present your request to God. And the peace of God, which transcends our understanding, will guard your hearts and your mind in Christ Jesus. So the thing here that Paul is instructing us to do when anxiety inevitably springs up inside of our minds is to capture those anxious thoughts and to turn them into a prayer. Okay? We're usually pretty good about one or the other, but Paul's giving us a process here. He's saying when something captivates you with fear, identify what it is that you're so afraid of and turn that into a prayer that acknowledges that God is in control of that thing. Let me give you guys an illustration of how this plays out in my life. Probably the thing that I'm the most distraught over in my life is that even though I'm just in my early 40s, my father has dementia and he's withering away in a nursing home with nobody to visit. And it's just so hard to be at this stage in life where you're taking care of young ones and you have an older one who you need to take care of as well. So terrible thoughts pop into my mind. Am I doing enough? Have I done the right things? 
should I be handling these very difficult social you know, issues differently, right? With social services and all the things that are required. And so when I find myself overcome with these anxious thoughts, I pray a prayer like this. I say, God, and there's no way I'm going to get through this without crying, all right? I say, God, I thank you for the wonderful six decades that you've given my father to be independent and to live free. I'm so grateful that he knows you as his Lord and his Savior. I thank you so much that his physical needs are being cared for. And I'm so grateful that one day he's going to meet you and he's going to receive a new mind and a new body and he's going to have such joy in your presence. And God, would you just give my father a moment right now, even in his dementia, where his spirit is comforted and reminded that you're good and you're loving and you're preparing a place for him. Hey, what happens when you're like in grade school and a pesky little kid goes up to a bigger kid and like pokes him right on a scab? That kid turns around and punches him right in the face, right? And does that pesky little kid go back the next day and poke that bigger kid in the bruise or the scab? Like, no way. They've learned their lesson. Do you guys want to understand what Paul's saying here? He's saying, when you're filled with anxiety, the devil is going to come and he's going to try to poke at your most vulnerable, weakest place. And if you can have the discipline to give that situation to God and acknowledge that God is in control and furthermore pray that the good God will continue to take control of that situation, the devil's going to stop bothering you about that thing. Do you get it? Do you understand the genius of what Paul is telling us here? You can combat the inevitable anxiousness in your life with a habit of thankful an expectant prayer that just takes that situation that's out of our control and says, God, I'm giving this back to you. And even furthermore, I'm asking you to continue to take over that situation. Guys, it works, okay? I promise you it works. The fourth thing that uh, Paul is telling us that we can do here to have more peace in our life, man, it's, it seems so simple. But the media and the art around us so often conspires against making it uh, easy. Paul tells us that you can have more peace in your life if you build your free time and you build your ambition and you build your identity on things that are pure and lovely and good. Listen to how Paul writes it here in Philippians chapter 4, verse 8. Brothers and sisters, whatever is true, whatever is noble, whatever is right, whatever is pure, whatever is lovely, whatever is admirable, if anything is excellent or praiseworthy, think about such things. Man, the things that are in your thoughts, the things that are in your dreams, those are the things that you've put there, right? Um, this is kind of a funny story. One day, one of my kids, they were really young. They were only like three or three and a half, and they woke up in the middle of the night, and they had a nightmare. And I had been super protective to shelter my kids from anything that would scare them. And so I asked, hey, buddy, what was, what was in your nightmare? What was making you so scared? And he said, a blue dog was chasing me. <laughs> right? Like, there's nothing really scary. So his, the only thing that was in his brain to torment him was a blue dog. He was really scared because when you're sleeping, you don't have control of your emotions. And I just said, well, is a blue dog really something that should scare us? 
No. We went right back to bed, right? Like our, our dreams and our consciousness and our thoughts are really just recycled things that we've put in in the first place. Paul's telling us, fill your ambition, fill your thoughts, fill your identity with things that are noble and pure and beautiful. I use this next illustration really sensitively because um, there are some people in their old age and a combination of just a deterioration of the brain or the medicines that they're on cause them to do things that are just not themselves. And you might have experienced an old person, uh, older person in your life whose uh, faculties started to fail and they just were not themselves anymore. And that is not what I'm talking about here. But the illustration that I do give is when I used to do services and minister in a nursing home in my former town, for the most part, those people, as they were starting to lose the ability to just initiate their own thoughts and behaviors, were just a collection of what they had been their whole life, for good and for bad. There was this one old woman who couldn't speak anymore. She had lost the ability to speak but if you put her in front of a piano with her eyes closed, she could just play countless beautiful hymns because that's what she was full of. That's what she had done in her spare time for most of her life. There was this other older woman who couldn't really do much, but she had been a caregiver her whole life. And so one of the staff members there had found out that if they could put a doll in her hand, she would be completely happy and content because she had been a loving caregiver for others her whole life. When she had a doll in her hand, she just had a beautiful smile on her face. There's another lady who had probably just been a, a housewife who just served everybody her whole life, and so when she would start to get agitated and discontent, they would put a basket of towels in front of her, and she would just start to fold those, and she would just have a smile on her face because in her, in her mind she was serving and taking care of others, right? But then there were others that would walk around swearing and punching and stealing and fighting. And I think it's a very challenging illustration that we end up being what we filled ourselves with our whole life. I um, just want to ask you guys to take an inventory of the things that you watch in your free time. What are the things that you read about? Are they stories that bring you inspiration or are they things that make you worry? What do you look at with your eyeballs? What do you play with? What do you spend your money on? What kind of companies do you invest in? Paul is telling us in all of these examples, build your life on things that are noble and pure and good, and it will increase the peace that we experience. So I'd like to invite the worship team to come forward and uh, wrap up our service with another beautiful song or two. And as they do, let me just kind of wrap up with a summary statement. Paul knows what it's like to live in a time when secular factions are just colliding with people of faith. Paul knows what it's like when these things create doubt and chaos and fear. And Paul is telling people in exactly our situation that God can supernaturally give us an aura of peace. He can give us a peace that we can't accomplish on our own. And Paul's telling us that we can have more of this through thankfulness, through gentleness, and through faith in a good God's control over all things. I know this is easy to think about and understand and hard to put into practice, 
God will help us to do it because that's what Galatians is promising us. Let's think about this as we wrap up with a final song or two.